The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. You're able to stand this morning. Will you stand as we read Hebrews chapter 5? Hebrews chapter 5. If you have a pew Bible this morning, that's page 1003. 1003 in the blue or black pew Bibles, whichever one you may have. We're going to be reading Hebrews 5, verses 11. We're going to be going down to chapter 6 and verse 8. Uh, we are going to get through this today, I promise you. Our chapter reminding you where we've been. We've been talking about Jesus being the superior high priest. Uh, Three weeks ago, we talked about him being greater than Melchizedek and all those things. But today, uh, another parenthesis the writer gives us as we get into this. Today's sermon title, Greater Than Unbelief. But more importantly, hear the word as we read it this morning. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this, the writer of Hebrews says, We have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone, verse 13, who lives on milk is unskilled in the righteousness of the word since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, chapter 6, verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings or the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For verse 4, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who've been enlightened, once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of the Lord of God and the powers of the age to come. If, verse 6, they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain has often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it cultivated receives a blessing from God. But, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And all God's people said, Amen. Tough passage today, guys, but I pray it's an encouragement to you. I'm just going to tell you I'm going to take a different angle than you've probably heard. Most of you have heard on this passage. It's not unbiblical. I think it's more contextual. I actually learned it from my former pastor who who is in these ranks today, many years ago in 2009 and 10 when he preached on this very passage. My notes are inspired a little bit, Willie, by your notes long, long ago. I'm sorry. That's right. (laughs) He said, I'm sorry if you could not hear him. But uh, this is a passage that's very hard, but it's something you can understand and get, and I pray it's an encouragement to you. You bow your heads with me this morning as we go before our Lord. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to hear the word of the Lord. Father, that is a, a blessing. So many cannot hear the word of the Lord, whether by physical impairment or just simply by way of never hearing the name Jesus. Father, let us not take for granted the awesome opportunity we have to be with fellow brothers and sisters. Yeah, that rub us the wrong way sometimes. We smell a little different, look a little different, act a little different, but we're family. And we pray as a family of God today that you are honored and your son is lifted high. 
We love you, Lord, so much. Thank you for sending your son to die, bury, and rise again. We look forward to the day when he comes again. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I'm going to give my son his notes. His job is to take notes. So uh, while mom is sick at home, his job is to take notes with a pencil, and uh, uh, we'll get all that squared away. Well, you have, I'm just going to get right into this this morning. Some of you have flown on an airplane, and I remember very clearly as you do, sitting on airplanes recently, or if it's been a while, when those airline instructors called flight attendants or stewardesses, whatever you call them today, get up and they start doing those weird symbols, and they grab the mask, and everyone's just on their phones, you look around, no one's listening, and they're looking in people's faces like this, and everyone's just doing their own thing. And you know what? Sometimes that's how we treat the very passage we're looking at, because we take for granted the very instructions that God gives us. And I tell you today, if you haven't been on a plane lately, they don't actually have real people doing it. It's actually on a screen most times if you've flown recently, depending on the plane. But one thing that comes to mind, and Amy will put this up, the next scripture here. One thing that comes to mind is Isaiah chapter 6. Because so often when you get on an airplane, you're so used to hearing those instructions, you just zone out. You tune it out. Isaiah 6.10 says, make the heart of the people fat. Make their eyes heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn again and be healed. There's a point at which people, when they hear the word of God, simply check out. That the person sharing the word of God simply becomes like that flight attendant looking like Richard Simmons sweating to the oldies up there in the front of the plane. And that's a sad, trivial thing because people need to hear the word of God at all times. And I want you to know this morning, as we get into this passage, there are three views that people have. The first view is this is that the people that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, some say, are those who have lost their salvation, just like you lose your car keys. And I know you have some smart people in here. You put those little dots on there where you can find your keys with your phone, with GPS. You're smart. Most of us just lose our car keys. Some people think that's what salvation is speaking of right here, that in Hebrews chapter 6, the people being spoken to can just lose their salvation. That's false. There are some, and I've taught this way too, there are some who simply see these people that we are referring to this morning as simply immature in their faith. They just need to grow up a little, you know, eat the strong food, get off the mill, grow out of baby stage. And the principle is there. That's not really what he's talking to. I believe the more biblical view of who he's talking to, once again, are people who have come this far to Jesus, but have never fully embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. You say, well, why would he write a book to people a church, when he, he, I mean, doesn't he believe that all the people in the church are Christians? No. Do you believe every person sitting in every chair, every pew, and every church, and every Sunday is really a Christian? If you believe that, you are very naive, I might say, because God knows the hearts. And I am preaching today the same way I, I believe the writer of Hebrews would be preaching. He's warning once again. Hebrews is the most evangelistic book probably in the whole New Testament, or one of the. So who's he writing to? He's writing to people who think they know Jesus because they're around the people. They might even partake of the Lord's Supper. They might even have been baptized. They might even sit in the pew. They might even do everything in the church, but really in their heart of hearts, they're as lost as the most lost person could be because they've duped themselves to think that they are in Christ. So I want to be clear. He's writing to people who've not yet come all the way to Jesus Christ. Now, most of us, if we're honest, if we've heard these verses before, it's like this. Hey, you're not growing spiritually? Go eat a hamburger at McDonald's, spiritually speaking, and grow up in Jesus. Or go get a big round burger at Jesus. Or, rah, rah, just gnaw into it. Read the Bible. Pray. That's great. That's not the meaning of the passage. 
And church, I wanna remind you that when good Christians disagree on interpretations, we need to go to the context. He's already done this in chapter two. He's already done this in chapter three. He's doing it again in chapter five and six. Oh, guess what? In chapter 10, he's gonna do it again. And in chapter 12, guess what? He's gonna do it again. Because he is not naive to think that everyone who reads his letter truly has come to know Jesus Christ. Scary thing. So today, I want you to see five things. The big idea today is this, and Amy will put this up, is that if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but it's yourself. Fill in self-help theology, whatever TV preacher you wanna put there. But five things today I want you to see, five results of rejecting Jesus Christ, five results, consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. And for sake of time, I wanna just jump right into this. If you're taking notes, those are on the back. It's very clear. Again, to just get under Pastor Nelson's skin with alliteration, they're all Ds. So if you like alliteration, words starting with the first thing of the words, you're good. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. Just go with it, all right? You'll be okay. But I want you to see the first consequence of rejecting Jesus Christ. It dulls the mind. You see this in verses 11 and 12. It dulls the mind. Verse 11 says, about this, we have much to say. What's he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about is, is, is Melchizedek. He's talking about all these great mysteries of the scripture. Now, I love it here because isn't it nice to know that even the writer of Hebrews sometimes says about the Bible, it's kind of hard to understand. And if you remember that, when Peter wrote a letter, his last letter at the very end of chapter three, you remember what he said about Paul? Paul's really wordy and sometimes he's really hard to understand. And you know what? That's okay. If the Bible were so simple that you could get everything about it, then you'd have God all figured out. That's not how it works. There are deep things of the Bible that when we come to them, we have to understand. But when you hear it over and over and over again, the word of God, and you don't respond to it, you start getting dull to it. Wives, it's like when you nag your husbands about that to-do list over and over and over. Eventually, it just becomes background noise. Amen, guys? All right, we got a couple amens out of that. Ladies, I'm sure it happens to you too, but guys especially, you know. Or if you're a parent and you tell your child or grandchild the same thing over and over and over, eventually it's in one ear and what? Out the other. So it is here too. He says in verse 11 concerning him, this is referring to Melchizedek. Not everyone was tracking with him. Not everyone was understanding. But he says, we have much to say. It's hard to explain. And it wasn't a problem for him to talk on for hours. It wasn't a problem for him to explain it but their ears had become dull of hearing, dull of hearing. This wasn't a physical problem. It was a spiritual problem. And that dull of hearing is that they were stuck on first base. They did not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had not yet repented and believed in Jesus. And they had no clue because they had not Christ. We said this in our Sunday school class. If you're there, bear with me. But let me remind you that outside of Jesus Christ, no one understands spiritual things. We are blind, we are dead in our sin, there's nothing good in us, there's nothing we can see. Corinthians reminds us that the natural man does not understand the spiritual things of God because we are outside. These people he was writing to were in the congregation or the, the area that he was writing to and they were like children in the kiddie pool. They had a little bit of truth up to their ankles but they couldn't yet get in the deep end because they hadn't trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord because they had rejected him. Remember in Matthew 13 that Jesus said that you will keep on hearing and not understand. Until you pass kindergarten, in other words, you can't go in the doctoral program. 
You can't learn about Melchizedek and all those things. They hear, but they don't hear. They hear, but they don't hear. John 12 reminds us, Jesus said, believe in the light while you have the light. Do you know anyone like this? You shared the gospel with them multiple times, and yet they know the truth, but they've never received the truth. They could tell you Jesus died for them. They could tell you what he did on the cross for you. They could tell you that he resurrected on the day, and then, that's great. Let's go eat supper right now. This is the people he's referring to. And Jesus withdrew himself in John 12 from these people. It's like someone who stares at the noonday sun. Again, they go to church, they go to the meals, they're on the Facebook group, they walk out every Sunday perhaps, but they have so much more to learn about Christ, yet they do not know Christ. That's why, and Amy will put this up, if you are at a place of stage in your life, if you are tired of hearing the gospel proclaimed, you've never actually heard the gospel. The moment the gospel gets boring to a Christian is the moment that perhaps you need to ask whether you know the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that as a Christian, you can't be in a rut spiritually, in sin perhaps, where you forget the glories of God's grace in your life. That happens, and we'll get there in a moment. But for most people, if you get tired of hearing the gospel, is that all they're gonna tell? Is that all that church believes is the gospel? Your heart may not really know Christ. It may know religion. It may know churchianity. It may know cultural Christianity of America but it may not know Jesus. And these were the people he was writing to. They were dull of hearing. And he says there in verse 11 that you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. You need someone again to remind you what the gospel is. And friends, let me tell you this morning and remind you that the gospel is simply, we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus alone, by his glory, for his glory alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone. That's it. Not baptism, not works, not good deeds, not sincerity, not I listen to every sermon pastor you ever given so I get an extra check mark in heaven. Only Jesus saves, amen? That's it. And these people sat under the truth and have not come to know Jesus Christ. They were dull of hearing. That's the first consequence of rejecting Christ. The second is this. They disregarded the gospel. Their minds were dull, more specifically now, verses 12 to 14, they disregarded the gospel. Notice what it says there. Now, again, I'm not, I have preached it this way too, and I don't think it's bad. Most preachers, when they get to this passage, are going to tell you, you need to grow up in Jesus Christ. You need to get off the spiritual milk, get off the bottle, Christian, not that bottle, the milk bottle. I saw the eyes. And get into the supper, the five-course meal. Get in the spiritual deep stuff. That is true in principle. But I want to remind you that every passage of Scripture has one interpretation. One interpretation, correct interpretation. There are thousands of applications, but one interpretation. For instance, if I come to you and say, John 14, 6 says, Jesus is a way, a truth, and a life, you're going to say, no. The correct interpretation is Jesus is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Christians can apply that a thousand different ways across their faith and in their church and in their world, but the correct interpretation is you either go through Jesus or you have nothing. That's it. Same thing here. The application is, is that as a Christian growing, you should be on strong spiritual food. But the interpretation is, in the context, he's speaking to people about milk. What is the milk here? Well, is it a mother's milk? Is it goat's milk? Is it soy-free milk? Is it gluten, almond-free milk? What, what is it? The milk here is the gospel. 
The milk here is the gospel. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, you need milk, not solid food. What's he already told them? He's already told them that they need the basic principles of the oracles of God. If everyone, for everyone who lives, lives on milk, verse 13, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. The milk here refers to the gospel. It's all you need to know. It is the elementary principles. It's a message about God himself, about repentance and faith. It is a message about all what the gospel is. And if you're an infant, if you're listed as an infant here, an infant is someone who's yet to come to Jesus Christ. It's rather one who's childish. It's one who needs to be saved. They can't handle the word of righteousness because they don't know the God of righteousness. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, he says, solid food is for the mature. What solid food are we talking about? He's basically saying to them, look, until you come to Jesus, all the things I've mentioned in Hebrews is just going to be like, <laughs> if you're on Facebook, you know I love my memes. I love to post those silly things like uh, I love the Rudy one. If you know the movie Rudy, there's a guy who claps when Rudy gets on the, the field and it's like a celebratory thing. You can type in a movie and it comes up with a clip and it kind of expresses your emotion instead of your words. Well, there's one that has Superman. If you remember Superman, remember which one it was? It's a Kent Clark one. It's original. He's kind of looking around like this. And in the parentheses up there, in the bubble, it says joke. And it's like Superman's looking around for the joke. He can't understand it. And that's how I feel a lot of times when people talk to me about technical things. It's like, it's like whoa, I don't understand anything you're saying. It's literally, literally over my head. And so it was with these people. They were like that Superman meme when they're looking around like Melchizedek, superiority of Jesus. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. Because they had not come to Jesus Christ. The milk here is the gospel. They needed to repent and believe in Jesus alone. And that's why, and Amy will put this up here, if your repentance has not changed your life, you need to repent of your repentance. Think about that for a second. If your repentance has not changed your life, you need to repent of your repentance. What does that mean, Pastor? There are many people who have repented, who have trusted, who've prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, member of a Baptist church. I've been a Christian all my life. My daddy was a Christian, I'm a Christian. Oh, I, I know Jesus, but I haven't lived for him for years. Fill the blank. Friends, I can repent every time I get an extra scoop of Ben and Jerry's ice cream all I want. That doesn't make me any more Christian just because I don't do it the next time. If you are here today and you are trusting in something man-made you did to become a Christian, you've never truly repented of your sin. You've been religious. You've jumped through some hoops. But the point of the passage is this. It's not saying to an immature believer, grow up. Rather, it's saying, come Christ. Come to Christ. We don't hear this type of preaching in a lot of churches, and I'm not patting ourselves on the back. We're going through a book. We're just doing what the scripture says here. But you need to know there are many people who sit in pews in any given church who are trusting something they did years ago to get them to heaven instead of the Jesus who's alive and living every day of their lives. If you're swinging out into eternity based on a decision that you did when you were a child and you've been walking like a hellion since that time, you need to really consider what's being said here. You need to repent of your repentance. Does that make sense? I think it does. Let's go to number three. 
You not only disregard the gospel when you reject Christ, but look at chapter six, one to three. You also defame the new. You defame the new. Verse six starts, and notice that your Bible should have a therefore, perhaps. You should have that there in chapter six, verse one. Therefore, let us, now he's being plural, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. What is that? The gospel and go on to maturity. What's maturity? It's all the things he's talked about and more, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God. And he's gonna list about six or seven things here. He says, washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What's he saying here? He's probably referring to a very Hebrew group. Remember, when we started the study months ago, he's writing to a group of people very familiar with the Jewish system of thought. These are people who are torn between, do I, do I go all the way for Christ or do I, do I go back and live under the law, the Old Testament law? But there is one way of salvation, he says, and he's trying to shake that foundation of Judaism from them. He says the elementary teaching, he talks about the elementary teachings of Christ, literally the Messiah, the anointed one. He says, look, you can't continue to practice your Old Testament stuff and be saved. You need to go on to maturity. The word literally, you might have the word wholeness or completeness in your Bible. He's reissuing the gospel extension there. But notice in verses one and two, when he starts listing out all the things that he's calling them away from, you notice that Jesus's name or God's name is not mentioned in there directly. He says, there's no mention of Christ, at least in those verses. He says, you have faith towards God. James 2.19, you believe in God, good. Even the demons believe in God. And what do they do? They shudder, they shake. Having a belief in God. That's why our coinage, when you, I don't have a coin on me, in God we trust, which God are we trusting in America? You pick your God. Is it the Bible's God or is it someone else's God? Because he says here that he who has the son has life. It's not just enough to believe. You have to believe in Christ He talks about the washings and the baptisms. Look, this was the ceremonial washings. He's saying, look, you can't go back to Leviticus 16 and live your life uh, washing your hands and doing this. Yeah, you should wash your hands. PSA, COVID taught us anything. It's wash your hands again, right? But you get that. But he's saying, look, this is not referring to baptism. The word here is not baptizo. It's not baptism. It's referring to washing, ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. The laying on of hands. I'm not trying to be gross here, but... Literally, the priest laying on a, an animal and, you know, you know, taking care of business for the sacrifice, if you know what I mean. Offering of animals isn't going to take you all the way. He, he talks about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He, he does not mention the forgiveness of Christ here. The summary is this, is that you cannot remain under the old covenant and be saved. You cannot defame the new, what has been done in Christ, and still live in the old. The old is gone. The new has what? Has come. And so you have to know that. And what a beautiful balance it is here between this and God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And he says in verse three, and this we will do if God permits. God knows those who are his. He has called out those who are saved, but at the same time, man is responsible to make 100% choice for God. They will come to Christ if God so wills. But friends, I wanna remind you, and we're gonna get into this in just a second, the meat of this passage is coming. When the cross of Jesus, and Amy will put this up, when the cross, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, he actually meant what he said. A couple Sundays ago, we were worshiping at the sister church, Southern Baptist Church in Boston, 
uh, Church on the Hills, great pastor, love the work they're doing there, multi-generational, multicultural congregation reaching a very unreached area. Uh, the pastor put up a, a, a picture of a seminary, quote, quote, seminary in New York. It said, if you believe that Jesus literally came back from the dead, you have nothing going for you. I also want to remind you, this is, a, this is Union Seminary in New York City, if you're wondering. The seminary also said, the president also had a day where they bowed to the plants and asked forgiveness for all the times they harvested them for their own food and their own good. I think you can understand this is not quite anything what was originally intended. Union Cemetery is pretty much it, brother. That's about right. And I say this to say that so many people forget that when Jesus said, it is finished, there's nothing to add to his work. It's done. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to be silly with it. We don't have to be unserious with it. He said what he meant. Aren't you grateful for that? When he said, it is finished, he didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. Your sin, the wrath, the judgment is poured out on him 100%. What he is telling these Hebrews, telling these Hebrew Christians and the congregation and those who've yet to come to Christ is, look, it's been clear to you. The Old Testament was a picture of what was to come and be fulfilled in Jesus. Don't go back there. That's why we walk a very fine line when we come to Jesus Christ. We trust only in him. Can there be Jews today that are saved, that come to Christ? Yes, there really can be. We call them Messianic Jews. But even within those circles, if they're honest, there is a pull to come back to the Old Testament because that's familiar. That's normal. We have a couple missionaries in our residence. They can tell you when people come to Christ in their region, there's a lot of pull, I'm sure, to go back to the way things used to be, the old religions. But if you're in Christ, you are in Christ. Don't defame the new or you're rejecting him. All right, here's the big one that comes up. What happens when you reject Jesus? The big verses you're looking at, what in the world do these mean? You defame the gospel or you disregard the gospel, you defame the new, but number four, you also defy the Lord. You do, rejecting Jesus defies the Lord, defies the Lord. Look at verses six, chapter six, verses four to six. These are controversial passages. They shouldn't be, but they are because the implications of it aren't what most people want to hear. Chapter six, verses four and six. I'm gonna read it all again. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall of then fall away, since they are crucifying once more the son of God to their own harm and holding up him up to contempt. What is impossible? Why is it impossible? Well, he tells you, who are these ones who've fallen away? Well, he tells you they were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the word of God. They had tasted the powers of the age to come. Who is this referring to? I mean, doesn't this just seem like a normal Christian? I mean, a Christian has been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift of salvation. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God, and they've tasted of the age to come. If he just stopped right there without verses seven and eight, or excuse me, verses five and six, you would think these are just Christians. But it is very clear from the passage, something is off. Someone is off. The word impossible there is the same word used in verse 18. It, it, it means what it means. It's impossible. They were once enlightened. So they have been, there has been something that has been brought to their attention that they now see they didn't see before. 
They've tasted, it's a figurative expression. That old dead guy, John Owen, good old Baptist guy said, we taste things, then we either receive or refuse them. John Owen, that's probably the most direct sentence you've probably ever given because he's a heady guy. But what he meant was, you either know Christ or you don't. He said they're partakers. They've shared with something or they're in the mix. But then they fall away. Notice it's a one-time thing. They fall away. It doesn't say they're falling like you would expect. You know, if you're a Christian, there are times you feel like you're falling away from Jesus. Ever been there before? This is a one-time thing. They have, they fell away, singular. It's done. They, they can't go back. In fact, it says they can't be renewed to repentance. They crucify again the Son of God. So again, let's be clear. These are people who've either lost their salvation, or it's a hypothetical. He's just using the, you know, he's just talking pastor speak. What is it? These are people who have never come to Jesus, but they've been around the church. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. Lord's Supper, they've been partakers of the fellowship. They've been around some awesome godly people. They've been enlightened to the truth. They've heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. And yet, they fall away. Didn't Jesus talk about this? The parable of the soils, you remember this? Three of the four soils that Jesus talked about, symbolically speaking, either grew up for a short time, had nothing happen, or they just, they, 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 they didn't like when the trouble came and they walked away. Only one soil came to walk with Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? Friends, this is not talking about people losing their salvation. This is talking about people who have been around people of salvation and refuse to accept that same salvation personally by trusting in Jesus alone. Do you see that? So when it says they're crucifying again the Son of God, let me just tell you very quickly what this means. Romans 1 is very clear. There comes a point in everyone's life where God will turn them over to their sin. When is that? Is there a, I don't know. You know, God didn't give us a beeper for those truly in Christ, and he didn't give us a double beeper, like at Walmart when you walk out with something you didn't scan at the self-checkout. I hate self-checkouts, don't you? (laughs) Amen. Jack, I'm looking back at you because you know all this Walmart stuff. Self-checkouts, we need the real deal. We don't have a self-checkout for people when they walk in a church that says, beep, 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 Christian, not Christian. That would be great. Make our jobs as pastors and deacons a lot easier as we serve the Lord. But what we know about these people is there comes a point, and this is Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 with Romans 1, with various other passages. There comes a point in everyone's life where God says, look, you want your sin? You love your sin? You want it more than me? Okay, you got it. There's literally a point of no Well, I thought that's happened when they died. Yeah, when they die, there's a point of no return too. But there is a point theologically, biblically, where God says, you want that sin so much, I give it over to you. You can never come back. Guys, he's already told us about these people in Hebrews. You remember them? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. Those people walking in the desert for 40 years, you know what God did to them? You want your sin? Go have it. I'll take this generation who wants to follow me into the promised land. They're the ones that are my people. What is my point? Amy, you can go ahead and put this up. 
So many people talk about the unpardonable sin. Say that five times fast. Unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? The only unpardonable sin is refusing to let God pardon you. Or to say it in Baptist language, the only unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus and not accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you think you've committed the unpardonable sin, I would almost guarantee you that is a good thing that you're thinking that way because you probably have not. That's why I warn you today as a Christian, don't go home and think that this is you. This could be you. But Christian, I wanna encourage you today, if you're in Christ, he never lets you go. He holds you tightly. You're his. And this text describes what you might call apostate. Your, your title of your Bible may actually have that. If you're concerned that you might have committed this, you haven't. To commit the sin, a person has a knowledge of the truth and they willingly deny the truth. But I want you to know today that only those who considerably reject, remain in their sin, and refuse to embrace Christ in unbelief is who this passage is talking about. It's not talking about Christians who lost their salvation. It's talking about non-Christians who are around Christian people and who never grasped, who never came to Christ. And that's what that is. Every church has it. Tower of you, I would like to think as your pastor, one of your pastors here, we know you pretty well. And I believe we're speaking to mostly believers here today. But you can dupe us. You can, you can put on a mask sometimes and get away with things we don't know about. If you're here today and you truly do not know Jesus and you're afraid to talk about it, don't be afraid. No greater gift than to come to know Jesus. That is the greatest gift you have. Last point is this. Rejecting Jesus defies the Lord, number four, but also number five, and I use this word in the context of what it means, it damns the soul. It damns the soul. Notice in verse seven, he gives a positive illustration. In verse eight, he gives a negative illustration. He uses two illustrations. First, the positive. I'll read verse seven. He says, for land that has drunk the rain has often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for the sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. What's he talking about here? Well, he's basically saying the ground here is the hearts. He's using a symbolic analogy now, as Jesus did often. The Hebrews writer does too. The ground here is the parable of the sowers in Matthew 13. The ground that receives the rain is the one that is good soil. The rain here is the teaching and preaching of the word of God. And like the rain, the gospel has come down from above. Like the rain, it's life-giving, so is the word of God. Deuteronomy 32 says, give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let my teaching to drop as rain as the showers on the land. Isaiah 55, 10, 11, I'm summarizing here, but for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and water the earth and furnish the seed to the sower, so shall my word not return void. Verse seven is referring to Christians. Verse seven, he's saying, look, if you're a Christian, you are not like verses four to six. God has a, a plan in the rain. God waters hearts and he waters our hearts with the gospel and you grow and you grow and you grow and you grow. And we cannot grow spiritually apart from the word and prayer. And we cannot grow spiritually apart from what Christ has done. But you notice that it's useful that this preparation of the soil, you know, rain runs off and there's a flash flood sometimes. But in verse, in verse seven, the useful result is that you are saved. If you're truly in Christ, you're like that good soil, the great uh, rolling hills of Missouri farmland that just sucks up that rain that's been coming the last few days and grows those big old crops. But you could also be verse eight. Look at verse eight. This is a negative example. But, this is referring to unbelievers. But, 
if it, if what? If the milk of the gospel, if the rain of the gospel, if the word of God, if, if the gospel itself, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is, what's your Bible say? They're worthless? Do you have something else? Rejected, worthless, and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This harkens back to Matthew 7, where a good tree bears good fruit. Even Jesus spoke so guys like me could get it. A good tree bears good fruit, and Jesus, a bad tree bears bad fruit. It doesn't grow, you know, a fruit tree doesn't grow out of thorns and thistles, does it, Jesus? No, it doesn't. The thorns and thistles here are referring to those that have yet to come to Christ. Verse 7, the rain comes, it grows and produces. Verse 8, the rain comes and it produces thorns and thistles. If you want a living example of that, come get my address after church. You can look at my front lawn, okay? This is it. We have, a, we have an unsaved lawn. It needs a lot of fertilizing, a lot of rain, a lot of cultivation by God's grace. Any day you want to come and help, you're more than welcome to. Our kids were out yesterday with their, their Jedi sabers cutting down the big uh, uh, dan white dandelions as they were helping us mow the yard. It was quite a sight. I'm sure our neighbors loved it. And so, but you notice there what he says, and it's close to being cursed. What is close to being cursed? Remember that point of no return? It's impossible for them to come to repentance. When a piece of ground was infiltrated with thorns, you know what they did in the old days? burned it up because they didn't want the bad soil, the bad stuff to get on the good stuff. And literally what this is referring to, I think you can see the connection, can't you? It's referring to hell. Amy, you can put this up as the last note here. Hell is a real place populated with real people suffering real agony from a real fire. And we are to avoid it at all costs and trust Jesus alone. That's what we know. It is to be burned. The farmer would burn the land. It's a picture of the one who's heard the gospel but plays fast and loose with spiritual things. This is one who literally someday will go to hell because they have rejected the basic things, the milk of the gospel. Do you see why this is not just telling you to grow up as a Christian? This is evangelistically. The writer of Hebrews is pulling a Billy Graham, if you want to say that wording. Charles Spurgeon, a George Whitfield, or whoever, a Greg Laurie, whoever the modern-day guy, evangelist, big, big guys are. Well, some of those guys have been dead for a while, but Greg Laurie's recent. He's 65, so he's recent. But the fire of hell is coming. Next week, as we close this out today, next week, he's going to give us six or seven signs about people who've truly come to Christ, because he wants to remind us all, if you're in Jesus, verses 9 to 12 are going to outline for you what that looks like. Say, Darren, that's great. Way to go. You, 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 did, you exposited the sermon. At least we hope you did. What's that mean for me? If you're a Christian here today, you should be able to say hallelujah as we take the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. Because he's never let you go. He's loved you. He's taken you in. And he's going to forgive you every single time. What an awesome God. But if you're not a believer here today, if you're watching online or wherever you are, and you don't know Jesus, today's the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Today is the day. Jesus will save you. He alone will save you. Will you pray with me as we close out our sermon today? Father, as we come to you, this is a tough passage, Lord, because we all know someone 
especially verses 4 to 6, who've been around the things of Christ, whether it's family, probably especially a family of God who loved and preached and tried to live out the truth imperfectly as we did and are, but wanted to go all the way for Jesus, but didn't. Or perhaps they thought they did because someone told them they were saved because they parroted back a sinner's prayer or or, or some magical incantational secret heavenly password words that the pastor said pray and then Jesus will come in your heart. Or they were around church people all their lives and they assumed that just because they were uh, birds of a feather, they're going to flock together to heaven with everybody else. I don't know. You know the heart, Lord. But I pray specifically today for someone in that boat in our lives Father, we don't know in that point where you just give them up to their sin is. So we want to love them, want to care for them, we want to show them grace, but we also want to speak boldly to their lives that if if they are playing fast and loose with your scriptures, with your son, with the gospel, there is coming a day where they will stand in judgment, as we heard again in 1 Thessalonians 5 in Sunday school. Father, we pray that you would draw them back. And Lord, we thank you. It it is not a uh, prescriptive illustration but that thief on the cross who had nothing to give, literally, who, who came, he wasn't baptized, he didn't walk an aisle, he didn't pray a prayer, he just simply trusted in the Son of God next to him on the cross. Father, that is not a, a prescription for every person in our life because not everyone will have that moment in that time to repent in Christ. So we pray, put on our hearts and minds this week, people in our lives, whether they're former church members or, or family members or neighbors or whatever, that we can encourage and share and call back to the gospel. But for those of us in Christ, we thank you that once and for all, it has been done, the sin has been taken, the punishment gone, and we say hallelujah, what a savior, because he is. Father, we love you. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. God's people said.